If you're new or you're visiting with us at the Cornerstone this morning, um, we're starting a new series on the book of Ecclesiastes. And one of the mistakes that a lot of people make with Ecclesiastes is they feel like everything is hopeless. Um, but it's not, as we're going to be seeing. And one of the keys, I think, to understanding the book of Ecclesiastes is what it means to understand life in this fallen world under the sun. Uh, there are two Hebrew words which I think give you the key to the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, and they are, in English, uh, man and meaninglessness or vanity, depending on your translation. Uh, in Hebrew, they are the names Adam and Abel. So, meaningless, meaningless, Hebel, Hebel, or Abel, Abel, says the preacher, uh, Solomon. In other words, it's hearkening back to the fall. And it's saying that life under the sun in this falling condition is meaningless because death takes everything away. That just as Adam saw his son Abel, Hebel, taken away, so too we see everything that is meaningful taken away. And so it's a profound examination of in that meaninglessness of our present condition, where do we go to find meaning? Is there one that has conquered death? Well, with that thought ringing in our ears, let's consider God's word. I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs of water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work. And yet, this was the reward for all my labour. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? 
I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise man has eyes in his head, while the fool walks around in darkness. But I came to realise that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said in my heart, this too is meaningless. For the wise man, like the fool, will not be long remembered. In days to come, both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man too must die. So I hated life, because the work that is done under the sun was a grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun, because I must leave them to one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labour under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge and skill, and then he must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labours under the sun? All his days his work is pain and grief. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is meaningless. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge and happiness. But to the sinner he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Let's pray. Father, as we come and as we reflect on your word now, we ask that, as we just said, you would speak to us. We pray, Heavenly Father, for each and every person here. You know where each and every one of us is at. You know our needs, whether it needs to be comforted or rebuked. Uh, so, Father, we pray that you would do that supernatural work of your Spirit, that you would give us ears to hear what your Spirit is saying to us through your Word. And, Father, we pray for myself that both what I say and how I say it would be what you would say and how you would say it. We commit this time into your hands now, and we ask for your blessing. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Somebody told me um, a science fiction story during the week in which an astronaut was marooned on a barren chunk of rock lost in outer space. He had with him two vials, one containing poison and the other vial containing a potion 
which would make him live forever. Realising his predicament, he gulped down the poison. But then to his horror, he discovered that he had swallowed the wrong vial. <laughs> he had drunk the portion for immortality. And that meant that he was cursed to exist forever. In the words of this parable, a meaningless, unending life. The story was a quote from a Christian apologist, and their conclusion regarding the parable was this. If God does not exist, then our lives are just like that. But according to the book of Ecclesiastes, and even human reason, I'm not sure that's quite right. Because it's death that destroys all meaning. You see, if the astronaut, even though he was on his own and abandoned, had immortality, then it would, I think, only be a matter of time before someone came and rescued him or found him. He was going to live forever. Or maybe over the course of a couple of million years, he figured out a way to get back to where everybody else was. The point is, though, is as Horrible as it is to be alone, and it is a particular form of torture, solitary confinement, the thing that destroys meaning is death. I had a maths teacher in year six who literally ripped out the answer section of the back of all of our maths textbooks. Uh, and he would sell you the maths textbook for a dollar, and the answer section for $30, something like that. And the reason was is because we'd all looked at the answers before we actually worked out the problem. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty mathematically challenged, and I always found knowing the answer before I had the problem very comforting and reassuring. I'd look up the answer at the start, make sure I knew what was right, so as I worked through the theorem, I knew I was on track because if I was going really skew if, um, I could actually correct it. And that's what I want to do for you today. For as we saw last week, the answer to meaninglessness is the power of Jesus' resurrection. The good news about Jesus is the answer to our greatest need. It is what makes life meaningful. For on that day, Jesus broke the power of sin and death once and for all. Now in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Solomon addresses four of the most common things which we're tempted to falsely think are going to bring us meaning. Because even though I give you the answer, the temptation is you won't believe me. The temptation you will all face and wrestle with is, yeah, but I think there's other, other things which I think will give me purpose. I think which are really good, I think will give me really meaning, and I think will therefore give me hope. But what I want to convince you of this morning with these four things from God's Word is they are hopeless. The four W's, wine, work, wisdom, and wealth. The four most common things people go to find meaning. You probably have another one in there if you're a guy and being sexist, women. Work, wisdom, and wealth. And then we, first of all, though, we turn to the subject of wine in verses 1 to 3. 
One of the things that the Bible clearly teaches is that getting drunk is a sin. And the reason why that is the case is because the Lord obviously doesn't want us to be mastered by anything. Notice that I said getting drunk is a sin. Not that drinking wine in and of itself is a sin. But Solomon's philosophical investigation here isn't life ultimately then about the experience of, let's say more generally, pleasure. Because none of it lasts. Maybe we should just focus on experiencing as many of the good things on this earth as we can. After all, doesn't the Spirit say in Psalm 104, He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread that sustains the heart. Oil, bread, wine are good gifts from God that He's created for our enjoyment. Shouldn't we then completely immerse ourselves in all of these things to forget about the futility and the meaninglessness of this current life? Shouldn't we surround ourselves with comics, uh, fill ourselves with laughter and folly? A lot of people actually live that way. And so Solomon explored that path fully and he quickly found out that it doesn't satisfy. You don't have to be a philosopher to work that out. What about finding meaning by accomplishing things through work then? About being productive and I can, you know, a good contributor to the community. After all, isn't that what we were originally created to do? The Lord God put the man in the garden to work and to take care of it. Interestingly, in Hebrew, the same words of the priest in the temple, to work and take care of it. Adam was to be a priest in God's temple garden as it filled the whole earth with his glory. In fact, if you take a look at verses 4 and 5, you'll see that that's exactly what Solomon tried to do. You could say he was like a priest king in this sense. He did everything he could to recreate the Garden of Eden by overturning the effects of the fall and recreating the paradise of God. He says in verse 4, I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards. I built up Lego and Duplo. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them with all kinds of fruit trees. And then he goes further down in verse 10 to say, And what my, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Now to work and to be productive are, like enjoying a nice glass of wine, good things to do. I mean, how satisfying is it when you create something with your own hands? Whether you're like Ian and you're a craftsman with wood, or whether you're like somebody else and you're a green thumb. It's good, isn't it, to be able to create and to nurture and to cultivate. We reflect the image of God when we do that. Especially if it contributes to the benefit of others or the organisation for which you work. Maybe it's showing mercy to those around you and counselling. 
There are heaps of things in life which you come home from a good day's work and you feel satisfied, don't you? For instance, the pleasure that comes from overseeing an organisation that has lots of employees and seeing them work well, or from listening to good music, or the joy that comes from physical companionship. Each and every one of those things are good, and as we'll see in just a moment, rightly to be enjoyed. But the problem is, is that none of those things bring meaning. Because none of those things ultimately will last. On every one of those things, there's one day when the timer will click over and we will be gone. They are all vapour. Or, as the Hebrew would say, Hevel. They are all like Abel, who returns to the dust. Because death will take each one of those things away. And no matter how hard we try, or how much money or effort we put into it, nothing we do can overturn the effects of the fall. For instance, you clean your house. Every mother here knows this, and it becomes dirty again. You build a company, and eventually it declines. Or you create a garden, and it very quickly is overgrown with weeds. Back in Sydney, I had... Uh, a good friend that had sold their house and had one of the most beautiful gardens in our suburb. And they sold their house to somebody that didn't really care about gardening. And nine months later, he said he just could not drive down the street again to see it all. And all the work, all the thoughtfulness, all the hours gone to frustration and decay. Absolutely nothing lasts. And that's precisely the point that Solomon is making here. Even the good things we expend our energies on, our vanity, our literal chasing after the wind, because everything after a while is blown away and is gone. A chasing after the wind is a really striking metaphor, isn't it? I mean, it's even worse than a dog chasing its own tail. Because at least with the dog, there's something tangible for it to take. There really is a tail at the end. But God's philosopher King Solomon says that putting your hope in the things of this life, things like wine or work, is like chasing the wind. It's so meaningless or temporary that you may as well be trying to grasp air. So that's the second thing we need to hear. We need to realise that work, while important and good, will not bring you meaning because death is going to destroy what you did. The third aspect Solomon addresses, though, is going to surprise you um, because it seems to go against the teaching of the Bible. But not only are wine and work a vapour, or that is meaningless, but so too is wisdom. Now, you really have to stop and think about what Solomon is saying here. I didn't read it before, but just take a look, if you have your Bibles, at what Solomon writes at the end of chapter 1, in particular verses 17 and 18. The Spirit says through Solomon, Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge 
the more grief. One of the smartest people I know is Des Richardson. Sorry to embarrass you, Des, but it's true. <laughs> Des has worked as a scientist nearly all of his life, focusing on the chemistry associated with wood and how it is used to make paper. And he said to me recently that the more he's learned, and he's just about there to retire, the more he's learned, the more he's realised how much he doesn't know. And that's a large part of what God's Word is saying to us here. The more knowledge, the more grief. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. But that's not the only reason why wisdom in and of itself is meaningless. I want to pay special attention to what Solomon says in verses 13 and 14. Because while it's obviously better to be wise than to be a fool, like we've just seen with work, wisdom doesn't last. For death takes both the wise and the foolish away. As Solomon says in verse 13, then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, and I love this, just as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, <laughs> but the fool walks around in darkness. And yet, I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Now, Solomon is not saying that because we're all going to die that it doesn't matter how we live. Because you can either walk in the light and see where you're going, or you can walk in the dark and stumble and hurt yourself. Alternatively, when we're wise, life tends to go well, doesn't it? And we normally experience more benefits and blessings. Because that's what normally happens when we want to devote ourselves to being wiser still. We do things like we read books, we memorise scripture, we look after our bodies, and we train ourselves to be godly, and that makes life a lot more simple, more straightforward. And yet, despite all of those things, and the benefits that being wise brings, death takes both the foolish as well as the wise person away. And that is meaningless. It's such a tragedy, isn't it, when you see a foolish person living long and a wise person dying young. I mean, it would be so much better for the wise person to be here to bless everybody with their character and their gifts than for the fool who just goes and squanders everything. But as we all know, that's not how it often is. I've seen good friends die in their 30s. Godly, wise women of God. And I've seen other people that you think, why are you here? What do you do except take? It's heaven. It's vapour or breath. Meaningless. This can be a really hard thing for us to hear, especially as Christians, because it's tempting to think that knowledge, and especially wisdom, is going to last forever. But it doesn't. Because this is what Solomon realised. The wise person dies too. 
Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Obviously, being wise is a good thing. Just as light is better than darkness. And it's much more beneficial to live a wise life than to be a fool. But make no mistake. Death will overtake both kinds of people. And that is what makes even wisdom heavenly. Because it doesn't deal with our central problem, that is, namely, the destructive force that is death, which leads us to the fourth point. And that concerns the vanity or vapour of wealth. Growing up, I greatly respected my father. He was a man of enormous integrity, and he modelled what it meant to work hard. My kids give me a hard time about this because I often tell them the story of what it was like to work with him in his earth-moving business in the uni holidays or school holidays. We would work so hard that our shirts would be soaked in sweat, which throughout the day would dry and then become wet with sweat again and then dry, so that by the end of the day you could literally see salt stains on your shirt and you could brush the salt off your shirt. Now, my dad very rarely, if ever, had a sick day. And I can remember him taking very, very, very few holidays over the course of my childhood. In fact, I think there was a period of six to nine months there where he didn't see our house in daylight. I vividly remember asking him if we could buy a boat. And he said, that's a great idea, Mark. One day. Now, obviously, that day never came. And he told me at the end of his life, when I was visiting him in palliative care and sitting in his bedside, that he felt really, really guilty about that. And so to make up for all the times that he'd missed out, it became his goal in his last couple of years to accumulate enough wealth for my sister and I to benefit from, to make up for all the times that he wasn't there. So after having worked 80-hour weeks for most of his life, he achieved his goal. And by the time that he died, he basically provided incredibly my, wife, my sister and uh, my wife and I with a house each. He was incredibly generous and sacrificial of him, for which I am just deeply, deeply grateful. Although there is not a day where I wouldn't give it all back if he was still here. But here's the thing. Within a couple of years of his passing, my sister's husband had lost everything that he'd given them in a bad business deal. All gone. That type of situation is what the Bible describes as being heaven. A tragic example of how wealth can be a vapour because all of those years of saving and sacrificing If my dad had been alive, he would have wisely warned my sister's husband not to go into business, particularly for him. But after he died, he obviously didn't have any control over what they did with what he had so generously given. This is how Solomon puts it in verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me and who knows 
whether he's going to be a wise man or if he's going to be a fool. And yet he will be the master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. It's vanity, isn't it? All the stuff that you're accumulating will one day have to be left to somebody else. And if your hope is in that stuff, just think about it. Will the people coming after you, will they use it well and wisely or will they be foolish? You don't know. You don't know. But then all of a sudden, in the midst of all of this philosophical doom and gloom, a brilliant ray of hope comes. For in the final verses of the chapter, Solomon says that there can be meaning of a kind in all this meaninglessness which we looked above. In fact, if I was being really clever, I could say the validity or the vapour of even worship. For it's God who gives us the grace on the one hand to enjoy and find satisfaction in the things which he has made. You notice that? If you enjoy a good glass of wine, to the glory of God. If you enjoy going to work tomorrow morning, to the glory of God. If he's given you wealth and houses, to the glory of God. That's his gift to you, that you enjoy it. That's the really great insight that Solomon offers. To the one who pleases him, God gives the ability to enjoy his food and his work. God's judgment is you can have all of those things and be miserable. You know anybody like that? I sure do. Whereas for the one who rejects him, do you know what their whole purpose in life is? According to God, to gather and to collect so that you can give it to somebody else. What they are doing has absolutely no meaning, no purpose at all. How confronting is that? I was reflecting on all of this this week and I realised something. Remember, uh, the Lord made Adam out of the dust of the earth to bring him to life, though. What did he do? He breathed into him the breath of life. That's what transformed Adam from being an inanimate blob of dust into a living, breathing human being or soul. It's that he was God-breathed. Now, the word in Hebrew is completely different, but God still breathes his breath of life into men and women. And when he does this, he brings about spiritual new birth. When that event takes place in your life, because of that breath, your life is no longer a vapour. But the breath of God gives life both now and forevermore. You live forever with him. That's precisely the point that Paul makes in Romans 8. Remember how he talked about creation, all of creation being subject to, here's the word, frustration, meaninglessness, hebel. Now the word frustration is the same word that the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it was originally written in Hebrew, 
but then they all got together and translated it into Greek. Right? The word frustration is the same word that the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses for our word meaninglessness. That is, because of the fall, all of creation was destined to decay, was destined to frustration. It was fundamentally infected with the effects of the fall. That's why the Apostle Paul says we, what now, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Our souls have been redeemed, but we're longing for that day when our bodies catch up with our souls, where our bodies are, are transformed. And this is what Christ has specifically achieved. Through his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, Jesus has reversed the effects of the fall. He has conquered death. For he was the first fruits as to what was going to take place for everybody else who believes in him. That as we have been born again, so too we will be resurrected, just like Jesus. However, we're not seeing or experiencing the full impact of what is one just yet. From all right now, we're going through all kinds of sufferings, aren't we? We're suffering and we're groaning and with everything else in creation, as though, Paul says, as though all of creation is in labour. All of creation is in the pains of childbirth. It's a great image, isn't it? My wife's been given birth to six children, actually seven. There was another one, which she had a stillborn. But each time I've been with her in that labour ward, and each time I reckon I've lost a shirt, and she's just I learned very early on, I think it was after number two, not to wear nice clothes to a labour ward. Because she was so in agony with frustration, and she's like, why are we doing this? Uh, and she goes, oh, that's right, because we're remembering what's to come. We're remembering the good gift at the end. You see, he's given us a taste through his spirit of a kind of first fruits of what is yet to come. Our bodies are in decay. <laughs> they're declining, they're sore. And he says, one day we're going to be liberated. Someone once described what is happening now. It's the difference between, and if you're old enough to remember the wars, you remember this, the difference between D-Day and V-Day. D-Day was the day where the war ended. But it took a while for, before absolutely everything came to a close. Until V-Day could be declared. And that's what it's like for us now. We're living in the gap of the ages. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, He's defeated death. We're still waiting patiently for everything to come to fruition. You see, not only is our Christian service not in vain, but God now lives inside us by His Holy Spirit. He is empowering us to follow Jesus, guiding us so as we know what to pray. You know what is really great about that, friends? The Holy Spirit is eternal. His presence and work in our hearts will go on forever and ever. In short, He is not heaven. And that means that we can, go, we can know that nothing 
This is the profound truth, like Ian read to us before, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Not life or death. Nor the spiritual powers. Nor the present, nor the future. Nothing. One of the most well-known scenes in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress is when Christian and hopeful discover that they must, at the end of their journey, still cross what is called the river of death. Uh, this is without doubt, I think, the most confronting element of not just Bunyan's book, but the Christian walk. For there is no way into the celestial city, their, their final destination, except that they have to pass through the waters of the last enemy. And as the character Christian faces the inevitability of his own death, he begins to be overwhelmed with fear. And so he asks the men standing by the river if the waters, are they all of the same depth? No, they say. But you shall find it, this is what they say, you shall find it deeper or shallower as you believe in the king of that place. What a profound spiritual insight. Bunyan truly understood the realities of what it meant to trust and follow Jesus and still wrestle with fear and doubt. As Christian and hopeful go into the water, Christian immediately begins to sink. And he cries out to his friend, hopeful. He says, I sink in the deep waters. The billows go over my head. All these waves go over me. He sense of, he's experienced like I'm lost. It's too much. I'm going to drown. I'm not going to get through. He's actually a direct quote, as Bunyan is wont to do, from Psalm 42. Once more, hopeful encourages his friend, though, reminding him of all that is true. And eventually, Christian is able to get his head above the water and to make his way to the far bank. In particular, Hopeful says this, Be of good cheer. Jesus Christ makes you whole. And with that, Onion says, Christian broke out into a loud voice, Oh, I see him again. And he tells me, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. And then we're told that they both took courage and the enemy was after that as still as a stone until they had passed on the way through. Bunyan writes, Christian therefore presently found ground to stand upon and so it followed that the rest of the river was but shallow. Thus they got over. I hope someone reminds me of those precious gospel truths at the time when I go to be with the Lord Jesus. Because I reckon I'm going to be a lot like Christian. Because here's the thing. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. As we read before in Romans 8, No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, whether they be of earth or of heaven, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord.
So don't be afraid. Since nothing and no one can snatch you out of Christ's hand, you can face anything which comes with confidence. You can walk through the waters or even pass through the flames because Jesus has conquered death. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and we praise you that you are such a mighty saviour, that through your death and resurrection you have opened for us a new and living way. Father, we uh, ask that you would strengthen us, our weak knees. Lord, help us to turn from those things that are making us stumble. Father, help us to not put our trust in the things of this world, but to enjoy them as the good gifts that they are from your hand. Father, help us to worship you. Lord, help us to know how much we are loved in Jesus. And give us the confidence to face whatever comes our way with your joy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.